So I want to I want to get into today's message, and uh, I want to start reading in, in Acts chapter nine. And we've been talking about this whole thing of of the persecuted church. And we understand that the persecution of the church began. We see it in, in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6. Uh, and uh, Stephen is stoned. He's the first martyr stone, not 420 stone, but stone like with rocks. You have to say that in context so people get it. You people live such sheltered lives. I can't believe he just said that on the front row. Oh, my goodness. Okay, anyhow. Just so you know, I can hear all you guys are talking about just a few minutes ago. So, Ann Lee, you may want to help in just a little bit. So... God bless you. <laughs> if I just come here and look at you, will that help at all? Okay, anyhow, all right. So, so, we're, so, so he's there for that. He's there for everything that's happening. And Saul is actually, that's when he's first introduced. That's when we first see this Saul, who later becomes Paul because of the conversion that he has with Christ, is so radical that his name is actually changed. But, um, but we're going to look at this today, and, and this is really important to catch in the life of the persecuted church, not just even in the first century, but also in, in light of, uh, of the 21st century. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which were Christ followers, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Then men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. I bet they did. And they heard the sound, that did, but they did not see anyone. Saul got it from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see any. He couldn't see anything. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, "Go straight to the house. Excuse me, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask him. Ask for a man from. I'll get this right in a minute. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul." For he is praying. In the vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Basically saying, God, I don't want to die. That's, what he, that's, that's translated that way, okay? Verse 14. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who, who call on your name. Nor do I want to go to jail. That's what Ananias is having this conversation with God. Well, the Lord said to Ananias, Go. No question mark, no anything, just declarative. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings uh, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Ananias went to the house of the Lord and entered, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me... Uh, so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So I, I, wanna, I just want to kind of give a little backstory before we kind of go into some of the applications from this and, and walk through this passage. First of all, Saul, we first see him at the stoning of Stephen. So the Bible says that those who stoned Stephen, who killed Stephen the first martyr of the church, uh, they took their coats and they laid them at Saul's feet. Now Saul, or Paul, as we know him, will write most of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
He will be the one that will take the gospel to the Gentiles. He will be the one that basically will be the first missionary, in essence, uh, and, and will basically kind of innovate missions as we know it. Um, but it's interesting to note that he's there in the early church, yet he's an adversary to the early church. He's a Pharisee, the Bible says. Now, a Pharisee was someone who would have been trained in Jewish law. They were very astute, very intelligent, uh, very uppity-type people. Uh, very, very narcissistic, um, very uh, full of themselves in many ways, because part of it was is that the more that they knew, they felt like that the, the more knowledge that they had, the closer to God they were, thus they separated themselves, much kind of like a class system, that they were above everybody else. Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, both different sects of, of, this, um, of this Jewish uh, tradition and Jewish uh, governmental type of a system, kind of overseeing the law in essence, um, they would pray daily, God, thank you that I'm not a, a Gentile, which would be a, a non-Jew, it would be most of us, um, a, uh, a dog or a woman. These men were very much full of themselves. Uh, they were noted by their flowing robes. Jesus called them out when he was living and just says, you think that you, because of your flowing garments and your robes, that you're really something, but really you're just, on the outside you look nice, but the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Um, these, these individuals, this is who Saul was. Uh, so these people were, they, they all also had an ideology that, uh, that almost like sin was, uh, was a communicable disease type of a deal that you could almost catch it. And so the essence was that um, what would happen is, is that you just didn't put yourself in a position that you were around someone that wasn't as holy as you were. That's really what it was. It was a, a legalistic holy contest. If you've ever been around someone who thought that they were better than a sinner or were very much, well, that's how I used to be, but they kind of removed themselves and very much... We call them Pharisaical because they were, they were like the Pharisee. That's, that's, that's where that comes from. And so this is who Paul was. He had a zeal and a passion because he was trying to protect the Jewish traditions. That's why he was persecuting the Christians. Because he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe, he believed he was a blasphemer. He was a, uh, he was a fake. He was a, uh, a poser, if you would. And, and so in essence, that Jesus was just a big lie. And maybe a lunatic, but he was at least a liar. And, and so in doing so, he had nothing to do with it. And he viewed Christianity as something that was encroaching upon his faith of Judaism. So he was doing this in order to protect God. He was doing this because he thought it was the right thing. He was doing this because he didn't believe that Jesus was a Messiah. And, uh, and he thought and looked at the church was, was, um, was basically destroying his Jewish faith. Um, he was vicious. He was ruthless. Um, we go on to read uh, what he will write throughout the New Testament. We understand Paul puts a lot of, he's, very, he's a competitor. Uh, so very much type A personality. I mean, you, you can just get this whole sense. Uh, fight the fight and, and run the race and, and don't run in a way. I mean, he, he did not believe that everybody got a blue ribbon, uh, that everybody's a winner. He, he was very much like run this race in a way that you win. So give it all. Do everything that you've got to do. Lay all your cards on the table, whatever you have to do in order to see things happen. It's interesting to note, too, that, that the road from Jerusalem to Damascus would have been about a seven-mile journey. This isn't like you hop a jet from Milwaukee, from Mitchell International, and you're in uh, Atlanta in an hour and 45 minutes. It's, um, it's, it's a, it's, it's a seven-day journey to, to this place. And somewhere along that way, he encounters Jesus and encounters him in such a way that he does a 180. It's also interesting to note that Paul's conversion is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. 
in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. And this is interesting to note because anytime you see something, whether it's in a passage of Scripture, it's repeated three times, or you see it that it's an account that's given three times in Scripture, uh, it's doing that to basically bold it or highlight it. Stephen, who was stoned and was the first martyr of the church, is only mentioned once. That account is only given to us once. But Paul, his conversion is three times. So it's, it's very much this way. Now here's also an interesting note. The only thing that's mentioned more than three times as far as accounts that are given in Scripture is the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The story of Jesus is mentioned four times. His life is chronicled four times. It's not by accident. It's to trump anything else to say above all else. Of the 66 books in the Bible, of the canon of Scripture that you hold from Genesis to Revelation, the most important thing that you need to understand, the entire book, it's why, why John wrote in John chapter 1, that the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was made flesh, and that flesh is Jesus. So, so as, you're, as you're looking through this, it's important to understand these things. Now, there are things about Paul I don't understand. I love Paul. I, 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 he will write the greatest theological treaties given to us on law and grace in the book of Romans. And, and it's because he understood it. You, you have to understand he was an academic. He, he was highly intellectual, but, but, but he was willing to roll up his sleeves and, and get dirty, if you would. He, he was one of those guys that could go in every man's world. And he was rugged, and he was shipwrecked, he was left for dead, he was in prison. And in imprisonment, he, he writes most of the New Testament. That's probably the why God allowed that to happen, because without it, he was too busy creating scraps to keep a scrapbook. You know what I'm talking about? He was too busy going and doing great exploits to, to stop and to do this. But, but there are things that I don't understand. And, and, and when we get to heaven, I think heaven's going to have the greatest movie theater known to man. And it will be a day where popcorn will not run out, and there's no need for Diet Coke because there's no more calories. And so, and this is one of the things I want. I want to watch the B-roll. I want to watch the scenes, not just of what Jesus did, but I want to see the Pharisees and the people that were in the crowd. Because here's what we know. We don't know everything. And the Bible even says that all the things that Jesus did, there's, the world could not contain the books. So of his 33 years on this planet, we have four books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that record his activities. There's no way that he records everything. We only know bits and pieces. We, we know enough. Right? We know the story. We, we, we know his journey. We know the ministry. We know what we need to know. But, but there are interactions. There are conversations. There are things. And many times we will notice that the Pharisees or the Sadducees, after Jesus would teach or after he would do a miracle or a sign or a wonder, they would approach him. And they're always grouped together. But we don't know who the specific people are for the most case in those settings. What we do know is that Paul would have lived during the exact same time of Jesus. What's happening right here is just weeks after the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is all happening within this same first year period, right? So Paul, Saul, would have been there while Jesus was there. For those of you that are going to go with me to Israel in the fall, you're going to get to see just how small of a geographical area most of this was. I mean, for us, it would be like, you know, it's just kind of like uh, everything is kind of like, you know, Germantown, Menominee Falls, kind of like that whole county line corridor, right? Right from, 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 from 4145 all the way to, to just right where the, the hill crest right there on, on county line road. And you just kind of go south to, 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 to Main Street, Germantown, to, uh, or, uh, yeah, and then north 
to uh, maybe it's where Menards or, or, or where Walmart is right there. I mean, just it's that whole area. And, and they're living and doing life in, in a geographical area. So, so they don't have cars. They, they don't have the ability to get around. So everybody's walking. And, and yes, there are outskirts and there are things that they're going to, but, but, but it's just not that big of an area. So it stands to reason that they probably passed each other. I wondered, was Paul ever part of the Pharisees? These are questions I don't know. If you have the answers, I'll be in the lobby afterwards. I'd love, to, I'd love to, you to tell me this. Um, but was he there? Was he there when Jesus fed the 5,000? Was he there when he turned water into wine? Was he at that wedding in Cana? Was he there when Jesus would have taught was he there when John recorded in John chapter 7 and Jesus took the scrolls of Isaiah and began to open them up and proclaim who he was and then sat down in the seat of the Messiah? Don't know. But we know that he knew him. Knew him so much that he gave his life to kill anyone who followed him. So that impetus for that amount of anger and rage and, and to destroy people that followed him started somewhere. We don't know. We don't understand either. It's interesting to me that Jesus, when he selects the 12, none of those individuals were academics in, in, the, in the sense of theology. So none of them were, would have been through rabbinical school in the way that a Pharisee or a Sadducee would have been. They would not have understood quite at the level. They would have been uh, more at a laity level and not so much as a trained theological level. But yet, Paul is that. But most of the disciples don't write any of the New Testament. It's Paul who will write most of the New Testament. And it's interesting that Paul's conversion comes after Jesus. And I just think to myself, God, if I write in the story, I probably would have had Paul have, a medical, have a, this incredible conversion experience. Great, but do it while Jesus is on the earth. That'd be pretty cool, right? Would have given a lot of applause. Maybe Stephen could be alive. Who knows? And, 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 and do that, and then, and then you would have this academic that would have been there. But yet Paul's story doesn't interact with Jesus until after his death. But that's significant, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Questions, questions, questions. So the first thing I want you to see on Paul's road to discovery that we see here in these, in these verses, these first 18 verses of, of, of uh, Acts chapter 9, is that Paul discovers that Jesus is alive. This is incredibly important that Jesus is alive. That Jesus wasn't just a Jew who died on a cross. And to us, sometimes we think, well, wow, that's pretty significant because, I mean, we only think of three people that we know that died on the cross. Jesus and the, and the thief on the right hand and the left hand. What you have to understand is that this was capital punishment in, in the first century. This is how the Romans did it. And so, you know, how today there's lethal injection uh, in the United States, and, and, and there could be electric chairs still. I guess that's, that's another way. Uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, there were, there were hanging uh, gallows, and that's what they would do. Matter of fact, I, my hometown, Fort Smith, if you've ever, Arkansas, if you've ever seen the movie True Grit, where the railroad ends, that's my hometown. And that was actually a fort. And the reason why I say this is because Judge Parker uh, hung more people in gallows than any judge in his time in Fort Smith, Arkansas. So if you go downtown where the Arkansas River runs between Oklahoma and Arkansas, uh, they still have the gallows up. And they did it in a public setting just much like they would do in the first century because they were trying to communicate a message. If you break the law, we will kill you. Let's keep everybody in line, everybody kind of huddled together. Let's all go this direction. So the fact that Jesus died on the cross is not significant. Matter of fact, if you, those of you that are wearing crosses around your neck, which there's nothing wrong with that, but that Christian symbolism, that would have not translated well in the first century at all. They would have been like, why are you doing that? But it makes no sense. Because it was a common criminal's death. 
It was not something to be magnified or glorified. It was just simply what it was. The unique thing isn't that Jesus died. The unique thing is not that he died on the cross. It's the fact that he rose again, that he lives. And this is what hits Paul. When Paul hears the voice, he knows it's the Lord without even understanding who it is. Because notice his response. Lord, who, who are you? And then Jesus, he sees the vision of Jesus. And the other companion, traveling companions don't see who Jesus is. They just hear all this, which would have freaked me out as well. And, and, and they were speechless. And so they, they hear this, but they don't see him. But then he says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you're persecuting. And, and in that moment, he has this, 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 this transformational experience. Because here's the deal is, every person who's ever claimed to be deity that's ever walked the face of the planet... You can take, you can take, I can take you to where they're buried, or at least part of their body is buried. When I was in Sri Lanka, this small country off the coast of India, earlier in the year, they took us up in the mountains uh, where all the tea farms, the tea leaves are all grown and all of that, and, and to a place called Kandy. And, and there, there is a Buddhist temple that supposedly there's four statues of Buddha that will protect the city. And you're in this shrine, of, and there's Buddhist monks and all of this that are protecting. And I've seen this all around the world. But, and I'm like, what's enshrined here? There's a, supposedly a tooth that nobody's seen uh, of Buddha. And it's all of this unreal amount of millions of dollars of just, of just ornate gold and sculpture and, 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 and stone and marble and people paying homage. So I can take you to Buddha's grave. We can take you to Krishna's grave. You, you, you can go to Muhammad, but there is no place where Jesus is buried. See, because he's risen. He's alive. And, 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 and that's what sets him apart. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world is the fact that the Savior, the, 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 the Messiah, the, the deity, it defeated death, hell, and the grave. And so when Paul sees Jesus, he doesn't see him dead. He doesn't see him on the cross. He sees him alive. It, it was the resurrected Jesus who Saul met on, on the road to Damascus. And immediately all of his arguments, all of his litigation is over. He, he, he has no case. You have to remember, he was, as we, we would look at it more as an attorney in essence, he, he, was a, he was someone who understood the law. And according to the Old Testament, he was kind of both a priest and a lawyer. He, he, he would have been someone who, who, would have, who would have given sacrament to the church, but also someone who would have also, because it, it, the law was what was going to litigate or take care of the people, the Jewish people, he was also someone that, that, that was connected in that, in that event, and he, so he could deal with both, and, and his case is completely over. Because Jesus is alive and standing in front of him. This is what's interesting, too. Even in the 21st century, I, I read you an account two weeks ago in the Middle East where a, a Muslim individual has a, a dream and has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus co communicates and talks in this dream and this vision and reveals himself. And this individual who's given their entire life to something diametrically opposed to Christ suddenly, instantly becomes saved. This happens over and over and over. You talk to missionaries. You, you read missionary journals. You, you read biographies of great missionaries. And there are these accounts. It's, it's very consistent where Jesus revealed himself to this tribe of people, where they knew that this was God, and he introduced himself as Jesus, and they came to some type of an, at least a basic faith and understanding of Christ, a, a conversion experience. And again, never elevate experience above Scripture, but here in Scripture we see this is one way that God led people into a faith with him. So he understands Jesus is alive, and it's a powerful experience. The second thing I want you to catch is that Paul understands that even though he's this Pharisee, he understands that I am lost. I'm lost. 
See, the Pharisees prided themselves on being keepers of the law. Thus, they were in relationship with God. And to the level that they kept the law was to the level that they were in relationship with God. And to the level they were in relationship with God was to the level of how much God loved them. Everything, they kept points on everything. Everything. I mean, they were OT about this. I mean, everything. And so they viewed themselves as being better than you. They viewed themselves as being higher than you. They, they, they viewed themselves. They considered themselves to be special in the eyes of God because they kept the law. It felt like that they were closer to God. And the people viewed them this way. And this is kind of a human condition. It's just funny to me that people will look at pastors and go, well, man, you must have an inside track. I don't. Sorry to burst your bubble. I don't. I'm just one beggar to another beggar where to find food. I'm not any better than you. I don't have any more corner market on God than you do. And here's the deal. It doesn't matter what my degrees are. It doesn't matter what, 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 what accolades I have. It, that doesn't matter. It's all about a relationship. For by grace I have been saved. Through faith and that not of myself, it's a gift of God, lest any of us would begin to boast. And so the reality is, is that when you look at a priest, he has no more power than you do. Quite frankly... To be honest with you, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that there were a lot of saints in the church that did a lot of stuff very quietly. And they're going to be the rock stars in heaven. Not the people that you know who wrote the greatest Christian bestseller in the last 12 months or who, who had the largest church or who had the largest this or the largest that. But I want you to understand, Paul goes from this big mentality, this big thing, all of a sudden to just, I'm lost. I need Jesus. One moment in the presence of Jesus, he realizes how much he needs help. Paul will go on later to write that all of his righteous actions were like rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. He'll go on to write, For by grace I have been saved through faith and that not of myself. It's a gift of God, lest I would become boastful. See, there's just this moment where he realizes that he's lost, and this is turning point. And lastly, I want you to see he realizes, because God speaks to him and to Ananias, and confirms it supernaturally because he reveals to Ananias things that only, only God and Paul would know. And he reveals to Ananias things that only, uh, and, and to Paul, only things that, that, that Ananias and God would know. And he brings the two of these together supernaturally. And it just confirms the fact that God has a plan. God has a plan. God takes this persecutor of this church this someone who was diametrically opposed to the message. This person that just, we just read about him a few chapters earlier. He's holding the coats of these men as they kill Stephen. And all of a sudden he goes from that to being the greatest preacher of the gospel in the first century, arguably. To be the one who will take the gospel to the Gentiles. The one who God will use on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write most of the New Testament. I mean, I mean who does this? God does this. I love what the Bible says, that God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God always goes in a way that you don't think he will. He'll always use people that you don't think he would use. I mean, when I was in Bible college, uh, we had a professor, and, uh, and, and uh, he was a guest lecturer at this point because he had gone, he had become a professor, and, and then he was pastoring a church, and, and uh, he had gotten kicked out of the Bible school, the Central Bible College, where I went to school in Springfield, Missouri, because he stole the there was uh, this uh, choir bus that they would take these choir trips. I mean, how goofy is that? But they would take this bus, and he, would, he stole the trip, uh, stole the bus and went on, a, uh, uh, went on a date just for kicks. And so they kicked him out of school. So he leaves there, goes to Harvard, gets his MDiv, comes back and teaches. But one thing that he would always say is, look, the people that are always perfect and have every hair in place and everything and da-da-da-da, they're probably not going to do a whole lot in ministry in the world. 
the guy or the gal that is just barely hanging on, that's just doing stuff that's just almost getting kicked out of school, maybe it's kicked out of school, they'll change the planet. And, and, and if you're in high school or middle school, you need to have straight A's. So don't, don't hear the part about getting kicked out of school, right? But, but what I'm trying to say is there's just this thing that sometimes that God will use this. And even, I mean, I've been out of Bible college, uh, my undergraduate, for 20 years or so. Um, it, it's, it's one of those things where the people that I was in school with that I thought would be like great worldwide leaders, a lot of them aren't even pastoring anymore. And the people that I thought would really just, that I didn't think would do a whole lot, I wound up meeting them in places and going, oh my goodness, dude, you are changing this part of the world. It's just how God works. And, and, and God, so God has a plan. And so in all of this, what I'm trying to say is, even in the persecution of the church, God is showing he has a plan. So, so what does this do? How does this apply to us today? Real simple. First of all, it's just a reminder that Jesus is alive. That Jesus is alive. That, that, that the God that you serve is not dead. He's alive. He's overcome death, hell, and the grave. He changed history with his life. And he changed, and, and, and the change of that history started the church in, in which you and I are a part of. Jesus is alive. We don't serve a dead God. We serve someone who's alive. Secondly, that we're all lost. And some of you need to be reminded of that because some of you think that your spiritual stuff doesn't stink. Some of you think that you're better than somebody else or that you're closer to God because, or, or well, I've been this many generations in the church. Who cares? Who flipping cares? Who's keeping record? God's not keeping record. No, 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 we're all lost. We're all hopeless. And none of us have a right, quote unquote, to, to, to a relationship with God. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. We should be people that understand we are lost. And the only reason why we're here is not because we're good or, we are, or we're perfect or because of our family, but it's because of Jesus. It's because of him. And in the middle of all this persecution, in the middle of what God's doing, God's imploring this message, hey, I can do anything that I want to, and, and, and to remind us that, that we're lost. And I even think in the 21st century of the persecution that's going on in the world that we're not directly connected to, it still reminds us we're all lost, that none of us are righteous, no, not one, that our righteousness is as the filthy rags on the side of a holy God. And I know that there are people in this room that don't believe that because you don't live like that. Because quite frankly, you want to stand in the way of sinners and seat, sit in the, in the seat of judgment against other people. <gasps> I can't believe they would let that kind of people in the church. <gasps> I can't believe. And you become a, basically a spiritual critic. You should have a Christian newspaper where you get to write your own critics column. You mean we're on the table on that one? You should have your own Christian newspaper where you have your own critics column. Because you want to critique well, I can't believe so-and-so is driving that kind of a car. I can't believe they're doing this. They're probably not me giving money to missions. I can't believe this is going on. Can you believe they let that kind of person come to theirs? Can you believe what she's wearing? I can't believe her parents aren't aware of that. It's completely immodest. That young man, did you hear what I heard about him? I heard he got drunk on Friday night. Oh, my goodness. When we take back for a minute and realize we're lost, all of us, without Jesus, we're lost. I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care what your degrees are. I don't care who you know. We're lost. And, and here's the other thing, too. Sometimes we want to sit back and we want to judge people and go, I just can't believe they're that demonstrative in worship. Well, you don't know what God's done in their life. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. And maybe God did some things in their life that he hadn't done in your life. Maybe he wants to do it in your life, but you're just too crusty Christian for him to do it. Oh, did I say that? Oh. Mm. Mm. Do you understand? Sometimes we just, we don't, this is what God's doing with Paul. He's taking this 
calloused, pharisaical, uh, self-indulgent, narcissistic, bloated person who's full of themselves and reducing them to nothing just to prove that he's God. And sir, ma'am, don't think for a minute that God is any respecter of persons. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. And God does not oppose those who are broken and who are humble, but he does oppose the proud, whether they're Christian or not. Humility is what gets the attention of God, the Bible says. We're lost. We're lost. Without Jesus, we're lost. Some of you think that church attendance is going to save you. It won't save you. Listen, going to church is not going to save you any more than going to Taco Bell is going to make you a taco. Or sitting in a garage is going to make you a Ferrari. It doesn't happen. You understand? It's by grace that we've been saved through Jesus Christ. For God so loved us that he gave his one and only son. That if we believe in Jesus, we will be saved. First John says that he's, he, Jesus, is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our sins. He's just, which means he has the ability to do it. So, so it's important for us to get that in our world because here's, here's the problem with that is. If we don't understand that, we begin to make Christianity a Western religion, and it's not. We begin to think that Jesus taught modern, spoke modern English like we do, and he didn't. He was a Jew. He never spoke English. He didn't speak King James. I'm sorry to bust some of your theological bubbles. I was with somebody this week, and they were asked to pray, and all of a sudden they began to pray in King James. Oh God, thou in the heavenlies, shall thou have thy will today? I felt like, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Look, the reason why that sounds like Shakespeare is because it was translated in the exact same time period, and Shakespeare was actually one of the translators. It was writers and translators. I'm just telling you in the, in the reality of it is we get these ideologies in our minds where, where we think that we have some corner market, like we're going to go help the world. Listen, the world needs help, but we're there to help them because we've been given much, not because we're American. And again, God bless America. I love being American. Don't you, you, look, I'm just telling you right now, this is the greatest country on the face of the planet. But I'm telling you, we don't have a corner market. We just have a bigger responsibility to, to a lost and dying world because God's given us so much. And the reason why God's blessed us so much is because we understand this one fact. We are lost without Jesus. Man, that's quiet. The other thing I think it's important to understand is that God can reach anybody. God can reach anybody. He reached Paul. He can reach anybody. Nobody's beyond the grace of God. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's too big of a critic of the church. Nobody's too far that God can't reach them. And I think it's important for us to remember that, that God can reach anybody. And if we will simply just be conduits of his grace, he'll reach people in our world. There's a young man that, that comes from time to time that, here to Life Church, and, and, and he's here on the front row, right here by the monitor, right over here to my left. And his name is Matt. We call, he's Batman. That's what you, you met him. He's Batman. You got a name, Batman? Yeah, it's Matt. But he likes Batman, Batman hat, Batman shirt, the whole deal. And, and a few weeks ago, there were, the Life Leadership College students just did something. I know this sounds really radical, but we used to do this a long time ago before we got to be too sensitive with everybody's feelings. And that was, they just did evangelism just went street witnessing and they encountered Matt and in the encountering of Matt they invited Matt to come to church and Matt came to church came to Life Church 
sat right here on the front row and was like blown away. Afterwards, he goes to Kevin Miller and just says, hey, man, can I stay for the second show? Like, like sound like I bought a movie ticket? I'm just going to like, can I stay again or do I need to come back out come again, or do I only get to come one time? He said, no, man, stay. And he'll sit there and he brings friends and they're talking during the service. And they're not talking because they don't, they're bored with the message like some of you talk. They're talking because they're trying to understand what's going on. They've got questions. And, they're, and, and while you guys are worshiping, they're looking all around, looking at you because they're on the front row. So they've got their backs and they're looking and they're just seeing what's going on. And they've got these questions. And they're finding Jesus. A, a few weeks ago, when, when we had my fest here on the parking lot, you know, they've got the, the beer and the brats and the big German festival and the whole deal. And, and it was on Saturday evening, and all of a sudden, a lady comes walking in, and, and she's got a long neck in, in her hand and, and, and a Miller Lite, and she's coming on in. And they said, what do we do, Pastor? I said, let her come in. I said, did you get me one? No, I didn't say that. But, you know, like, let her come in. And here's my point. Here's my point. When did this building become a place where God lives? He doesn't live here. You understand that? This is just a building. If anybody should know that buildings don't matter, it should be Life Church. We were in a Bavarian chalet storefront that scared more people off than, than it did attract people, let's just be honest, for a long time and, and close to 1,000 people in 10,000 square feet. Who does that? Not in America. But God, when he's lifted high, he'll draw all manner unto him. And I'm saying this to let you know that that's what we're all about. That's what we need to understand, that in the middle of the world in which we live in, God is drawing people. If we'll just lift up the name of Jesus, if we'll just love people, God will draw them. And I hear somebody in the room kind of going, well, I understand, but now grace is a slippery slope. Thank you for uh, kind of giving me an entree to say something. Don't you love it when I ask questions and I answer them? <laughs> the law was not given, but for one reason, to show that it was, had an inability to save us. And that there was only one who could do that, and his name is Jesus. That's why grace is so much more powerful than the law. The most powerful thing is not the law. It's grace. It's why Paul will write in Romans. It's not the judgment of God that leads me to repentance. It's the kindness of God. It's the fact that God could wipe me off the face of the planet at any particular point in time, yet he chooses to love me. That I can war against him, yet he showers me with his love. That I can ascend to the heavens and he's there, but if I ascend to the very depths of hell, he is there as well. I cannot escape his presence. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. God can reach anybody. God has a plan. I've said this before, but I say it again. God has a plan. Take peace. I know there's some crazy stuff happening in this world, but listen, before it all explodes, before the San Andreas Fault throws California into the ocean, as we've all seen this weekend, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure some of you have, at the end of the day, God's got a plan. And he holds, the Bible says, he holds the water of this world in the hollow of his hand. And don't forget, as we talk about the persecuted church and we talk about the bride of Christ, 
that everybody counts. Not just Americans. Not just Bible Belt Christians. Not just good Catholics and Lutherans. But everybody. Buddhists. Who are dying and on their way to hell without Jesus. Muslims who are giving their life to a false god. Agnostics and atheists that are like a termite and a yo-yo. They're so confused. They just go round and around in a self-refuting theory. Although the very time that they mark and the life that they live, that they carry on their wristwatch or on their smartphone, has been marked and set apart by the one whom they deny, and his name is Jesus. That's what we should have hope in. Is that whether we go around the corner or around the world, we who have been blessed have responsibility to those who have not. Whether it's opening the door to somebody who's far away from God, whether it's answering a question of a new convert sitting on the front row, asking if they can come back for a second service and just sit here one more time, whether it's in an offering that's given to help minister to needs of missionaries far, far away, and results and dividends and, and returns that we won't see this side of eternity, whether it's going across the street to a neighbor or across the lunchroom in the cafeteria at school to someone who's hurting visibly, sharing the love of Christ, giving grace, giving love, realizing that, man, we are all lost, but that Jesus is alive in us. And the power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. So I pray as you go today that just as we see in the middle of the persecution in the book of Acts, the same is true 20 centuries later. That God is working. That God holds this whole world in His hands. And that we have nothing to fear. Matter of fact, fear should never be in the vocabulary of a Christ follower. It should never come out of our mouth. I know I shouldn't be scared, but I know that I shouldn't be fearful, but no, just quit talking like that. Words have power. They have meaning. Paul will write to Timothy, who is scared to death, this young kid who's going to lead the largest church in the New Testament, Ephesus. close to 100,000 Christ followers. He's dealing with anxiety. He's dealing with, with almost depressive type behaviors. He's, 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 he's having to take a certain amount of medicinal uh, uh, things in order to be able just to, to cope and get through because he's so overwhelmed. And Paul says, God has not given you, Timothy, the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Remember threes? Power, love, sound mind. God doesn't operate in that way. God's got this whole thing taken care of. And contrary to what the critics say and the agnostics say and everybody else in the world says, there will come a day where the trumpet of the Lord will sound and time will be no more. And those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air. And forever we will be with Jesus. And the only thing we won't be able to do then is to see someone who's far away from Jesus come to a converted experience to ask Jesus into their heart and into their life. 
That's what we're challenged with today. For as long as we have breath, for as long as we have strength, for as long as we have a voice, for as long as we are living on this planet, we will preach Christ until he comes. Not me. We. My job isn't to do that as a pastor, as a Christ follower it is. A lady that was baptized on the platform last night was a lady that I met Claire 10 years ago in the business community here. Came to Life Church about two years ago, gave her life to Jesus, and just through relationship, and, and, we, and I baptized her last night. So that's my responsibility. Who have you led to Jesus in the last year? Sometimes it takes 10 years. See, that's my responsibility. I want you to understand something. As a pastor, I will never ask you to do what I don't do. I can tell you stories like that all throughout this church of people that have personally led to Jesus. My wife can tell you stories of people that she's personally led to Jesus. Not because we're trying to beat our chest, because I don't need a chest or a medal to pin it on. But the reality is, is at the end of the day, that's my responsibility as a Christ follower. That's your responsibility as a Christ follower, to fill these seats. That's not my job. That's your job. But as a pastor, I'm here to stir you on and to equip you to do the work of the ministry until he comes. Because in the midst of persecution, God shows us that he can bring life change about with anyone, anywhere, supernaturally. That's the hope that we have in Jesus.